Hey, thanks so much for stepping into that time of family. Uh, we got some new folks with us this week, so uh, just love to have you guys. Lauren, really nice to meet you. And Sarah and Rod, really nice to meet you guys. Welcome to Coastline. Really glad you found us. Uh, we might even have some more new people in the room. If you're new, welcome. And we'll have our little table back there in the foyer, and uh, we'd love to connect with you and get you more information uh, about Coastline. Come join us on the beach. Um, I think I will be sitting in a chair drinking coffee. I will not be doing burpees. Um, that is for sure. I, I might be coaxed into a little bit of exercise because the Lord knows that I need it. Um, hey, welcome. I'm really glad that you guys made it. Uh, you know that, that COVID has kind of run through our community in the last week or two, um, and so I'm glad that you guys are healthy. A lot of us have already been through it on the other side of it. Just keep praying for brothers and sisters to stay safe and healthy, and um, just excited that, as Sean said, our high schoolers have gotten to go to camp, um, and Hunter and his crew, Nikki, um, and other folks that just jumped in last minute to make that camp experience rich, and we're just very, very thankful for them. I would like to start off our time this evening uh, talking about this reality that we care deeply about who we're partnered with, particularly when it comes to who we roommate with, our roommate relationship, maybe a dating relationship, or even our marriage relationship. Who we partner with really matters to us. The kind of partner we are matters to us. I came across a study that has, that has been basically put on by eHarmony, if you know that kind of uh, faith-based Christian website. I remember 15 years ago when I did my first like, eHarmony connection wedding, and at that time it was like bizarre and weird, and like, they didn't want to tell me how they'd met, and now most of the weddings that I do, I feel like most people are connecting on eHarmony or something like that. It's just kind of the way of how technology has entered the dating world. And yet, they've done this study, and over the last eight years, they've kind of compiled people's responses to come up with, like, the top ten qualities that you're looking for in a partner, and then also the, like, top ten can't stands, okay? So let me read a few of these to us. They shouldn't be a surprise on the must-have qualities. We have uh, intelligent and sharp and have a, hu- a sense of humor that you contribute, that you know how to give and receive affection, that you're someone that the other person can always count on, and that you are deeply in love with this person, and that uh, you're a good talker and a good listener, you're gentle and kind, you're emotionally healthy, you're honest, and you're patient. Right? Some of that sounds like 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, like love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, is not, uh, does not boast, is not proud, is not rude. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us. What I found kind of funny and humorous on the can't stand qualities, lying was number one, Taking advantage of people was number two. Uh, Someone who belittles others or is impatient or angry was number three. And then number four surprised me. Isn't clean. Isn't clean. So single men, young men, take showers. Because what surprised me was that was number four. And being a cheater was listed as number five. So it is more important that you bathe yourself on a regular basis than it is to you be like honest in relationship. I found that a little bit odd and funny, but there's all of these statistics about how to have a relationship, how to be a good partner. I came across 18 qualities that you need to find in a partner before you commit to them. I read through all of them. I found a list of 25 qualities of a person that you should marry. And what I learned through all of this is that all of us are looking for Adam and Eve before the fall. 
We're all looking for like the perfect partner in your roommate relationship, dating, marriage, it doesn't matter what it is. We're all looking for the person who hasn't been impacted by sin. And I think we think about this a lot. There's a lot of statistical data that you can look into, but I wonder as I process this, do you and I think much about our partnership with God? We think a lot about ourselves as partners and our partners, but do we think about the reality that we are partnered if we know Christ, that we are partnered with the living God by his grace through faith, that we're actually partnered to Yahweh, the living God, and do we give that any consideration? Is God a good partner? Are we a good partner to God? And tonight what I'd like to do is look into two different and yet intertwined visions. And in them we're gonna see very important truths. In fact, two important truths that help us both define our lives and give clarity to our daily living. The first one is that it is God who builds his church. If we're gonna build Coastline, if God has great plans for Coastline, if there's growth involved both in your relationship with God and for us externally with numbers, it's gonna be initiated by God. And yet in the midst of that, the other truth is that God partners with us to do it. Let me give you a little bit of refresher. We've been in the book of Acts for quite some time. I've told you this before, but Acts 1.8 is kind of like the you are here or maybe like the table of contents for Luke's writing of this book. And let me refresh your memory. In Acts 1.8, Luke pens this. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so in Acts 1 through 7, we saw this first fulfillment of the gospel going out from Pentecost and the disciples and the apostles into Jerusalem and Judea. And then we saw after the martyrdom of Stephen, that Philip gets sent out, and through Philip and Peter, the gospel comes to Samaria, to the Samaritans, and now we're at this pivotal place in this book called Acts, where we're gonna begin God's mission to save the Gentiles, which is most of us. And it began in the conversion of Saul, what Sean preached on the last two weeks, as he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and then this week, tonight, we're going to look into the, the first conversion story, the, the beginning seeds of God's plan to save the Gentiles. And so we're about to turn this very significant corner in God's plan to bring the Gentiles into God's plan of salvation, into his family, into his church. And as he's doing this, as we look at these two visions together, we're going to see that God is the initiator. He's the one that makes it happen. He's the one that has promised it out of Acts 1-8 that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, and now he's bringing it to fruition with two separate individuals, Cornelius and Peter. And tonight, as we look into these two visions, really our focus is going to be on how does God partner with us? If we can take a step back and take just a breath for a moment and realize God is the one going to build coastline, not us. So we can take an easy breath saying, okay, God is the one who does the work. 
And yet he calls us into this partnership with him. And what I would like to do as we look at these two intertwined visions is think about what does our partnership with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ really look like? Because I believe if you and I grab a hold of what this partnership looks like, we we get a better understanding of not only God, but God's plans and purposes for our lives collectively as coastline, but then we also get a vision of what God might uniquely be doing in and through you and the days that you have on this globe that God has planned in store for you. So with that, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the passage and we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. Father, you promise in Hebrews 4 that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates, Father, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. And so, Lord, we pray as we open up your truth, as we open up scripture this evening, and we invite the Holy Spirit who is here, Lord, into our mind and heart, we pray that you would allow each one of us to receive a truth from you that you would bring a word of exhortation, that you would bring a word of encouragement that might be needed in this room, that you might bring, Father, a reprimand if we need that, to get back on track, Lord, your loving discipline, because you love us so much, you won't leave us with how we're currently living. God, we thank you that you do this in your grace, and Lord, we pray that you would do something in this time that we have as we think about you being partnered with us, Father, give us a greater glimpse of who you are and the great opportunity we have in this partnership with you as you build your kingdom. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I'm not going to ask you to stand because I'm going to read quite a long section of scripture here, but tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. If you want to open your Bibles or get out your phone, you can follow along on the side screens. Uh, Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 23, so that you can see both visions and how they intertwine, and then we'll go after it together as far as uh, unpacking it and getting some greater understanding. Okay, so Luke pens this in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon, which is about 21 hours later, the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, you have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to this house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Okay, so here we are. We have two visions. And the first thing I'd like to point out is that, that God is the one who takes initiative. That there's no way that this centurion named Cornelius and this apostle named Peter, this Gentile and Jew, would have ever connected unless God was the one who initiated the work. It's through these two visions that God begins his plan of saving the Gentiles. Now we know Caesarea is a Roman soldier town. There's a garrison there. It's the administrative capital of Judea. And we know that Cornelius, by his name and his rank, is a Roman citizen, and he's also a centurion. Now, it's helpful to know a little bit about the Roman military to understand who Cornelius is. See, the smallest unit of the Roman army was a century, which was 100 men. A regiment, as it says that he's part of the Italian regiment, is made up of six centuries, or 600 men, and a legion, which was 6,000 men, was made up of six um, uh, regiments. So a centurion is the base commander of the Roman army. He's like a captain in today's military. And so he is a well-to-do man, and he has command over others. We're also told here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that not only is he a centurion, but it tells us that he and his family were devout and God-fearing, that they gave generously to the poor, and that he prayed regularly. Now, to be a God-fearer meant that, yes, he was still a Gentile, but he believed in Yahweh, the Jewish God, the God of the Bible, the living God. And as a believer of Yahweh, then he follows parts of the Torah and he probably goes to synagogue. But he's not circumcised. So he's not fully in as a Jew. He's still a Gentile. And so even though he fears Yahweh and follows the living God of the Bible, there's still this growing ethnic gap between the Jews and God's work and everybody who's non-Jewish, the Gentiles. And yet we're told here that he is a, this God-fearer who gives to the poor and he prays. Now we're not told specifically that he's in the middle of prayer when God gives him this vision. But I believe that you can deduce with some kind of certainty that he's probably praying in this moment. Because we're told that it's three in the afternoon, which is like the high mark of prayer in the Jewish religious system. See, a good Jew would pray three times a day. They'd pray at nine, at three, and at six. 
And particularly for Christians, praying at three, like for Peter, is important. Remember back in Acts chapter three, when Peter and John go to the temple, and they're going up to pray, and they find the man at the gate beautiful, and they heal the lame man? They're going up to the temple at three o'clock to pray. And part of the reason that's so significant, if you remember from the crucifixion of Jesus, it was exactly at three o'clock that the, the temple curtain tore in two, and the beginning of the new covenant began. This idea that we would now be infused after Pentecost with the Holy Spirit, and as it says in Hebrews chapter four, that we could now, even though we are sinners, approach the throne of God with his grace. So I believe that Cornelius is involved in prayer in this moment as he's given this vision. And friends, it's no accident that as you read about Peter's vision in chapter nine, that he's hungry, he's waiting on lunch, and he goes up to the rooftop to do what? To pray, to pray. See, I believe prayer draws us closer into partnership with God. Look with me back in verse four. It's a really profound verse. Cornelius is standing there in fear after he gets the vision. He says, what is it, Lord? And the angel answers, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Can we just pause for a moment? You can read through that and skip through that and be like, memorial offering, whatever, let's go on to the next vision. Let's pause for a moment and think together about what that means. It means that every time you pray on your way to work, every time you pray as you're falling asleep, every time you enter prayer and your mind wanders and you think, that was a really bad prayer time, every time you go and you have a tremendous time of deep and rich prayer, every time you journal and have this great encounter with the living God, every time that your prayer time is terrible and every time that your prayer time is amazing, God hears it. He remembers it. He knows about it. And I know very few things other than God hears, knows, and responds that motivates his children, you and I, to step in to lives of prayer. See, God loves to partner with those that have hungry hearts. Let me say that again. God loves to partner with hearts that are seeking after him. See, there's this running theme throughout Scripture that God is gonna accomplish his will. He's gonna get his kingdom work done. It's his initiative, and yet he invites us in in this relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, to come and have this intimate relationship with him. And that, I think, friends, is really what the motivating factor is for him in this partnership. There's this running theme, as I've said, that I see in Scripture. It begins with Moses. If you remember Moses and the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, if you're a note taker, write it down and go take a look at it. It basically says that there's this bush burning, and as Moses notices the burning bush and approaches the burning bush, God, when he notices that Moses notices, that's when God speaks to him. It's like God is waiting to do his work. He's gonna accomplish it. He's gonna get it done. He's sovereign, and he's inviting you and I to say, come, take a step closer with me. And after you do that, then I'm gonna step closer toward you in this great intimacy and partnership that we have together. I think you see this in Jesus' life, in Jesus' prayer life, and you see it throughout Scripture, and you see it here in Cornelius' life, and in Peter's life. 
God loves to partner with hungry hearts. And a sign of a hungry heart is a heart that's turned toward God in prayer. I love what Willie Jenkins, in his commentary on Acts, he says this, hunger, talking about our spiritual hunger, our hunger for God, our hunger to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ, our hunger to be used by him to advance his kingdom. Hunger sets the stage for prayer, and prayer sets the table for hunger. God works through prayer, but God works on the site of hunger. Now let's think about that. What is he saying in that statement? Hunger for God, growth, and divine intervention leads us to prayer. And prayer, though, often does not satisfy us. Instead, it grows a greater hunger. And as you and I hunger for greater things of God, God works in that locale of our prayer life to work on us. That's what he means when he says that hunger fuels prayer, and yet prayer fuels hunger. And as that hunger for God is infused, that's when God shows up on site in our lives and works. It's the place that you and I long for more of God to show up and show out in our lives that God shows up in the moment and is working in our lives. Let me give you an example. Uh, Several, boy, it seems like several months ago now, we were in Acts. I was teaching on Acts chapter four on prayer, and I shared with you something God had put in my heart and kind of gave the challenge to the congregation. Let's pray together at 1115 every day that God would open up an opportunity for Coastline to meet Sunday mornings, maybe at 11.15. So let's just step into that prayer together. And I've had it on my phone as an alarm ever since. And I've been praying every time my alarm goes off at 11.15, God, open up a door, open up an opportunity. And what I've found is that that hunger has led to greater prayer. And yet that prayer hasn't led to being overly satisfied. It's led to more hunger in my life, to more engagement with God. Questions that have come up for me in this have been things like this. Do you trust me, Garrick, to provide? Do you trust my perfect timing? Will you continue to lean into me if you don't see results? Will you remain expectant and hopeful? If the answer to this question is yes or if it's no, will you remain with me and allow me to be your portion? See, friends, hunger fuels prayer and prayer fuels hunger and God works on the site where you and I are spiritually hungry. So if it's been a long time for you to see God show up in your life and do something where you can point and say, that is the God of the Bible. That is the living God right there. Maybe the encouragement for you this evening is, where are you spiritually hungry? Has it been a long time that you felt a need and a want that you know that you can't get or satisfy or fill on your own? Because hunger leads to prayer, and prayer leads to God's work in our lives. Prayer is a sign of a hungry heart. So let's jump into this second vision. Peter gets this vision of these unclean animals. The details of the vision, he's up, it's in the afternoon, he's waiting on lunch, he's hungry, we're told in the text, and he steps into this time of prayer, and then it says, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, that's verse 10. Verse 11, 
He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. The voice told him from God, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter responded, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And so here's the vision Peter's up on the rooftop and he's hungry, he's waiting for food, and he's in prayer. And I don't think it's an accident that God shows up and gives him this vision when he is physically hungry. Because God is using food as a metaphor for the work that he's trying to do in Peter's life. And so Peter is involved in this prayer, he gets this vision, in the vision, this sheet comes down from heaven, so he knows this is the Lord, and the Lord's doing some kind of work, and on the sheet is all kind of clean and unclean animals. And I don't have time to unpack all of what that means, but it has to do with Jewish dietary laws. If you want to read about it, it's in, uh, where is it? It's in Leviticus chapter, I believe, 14, and um, Deuteronomy chapter 11. Actually, I think it's Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. But the basis of it is this. The, The Jewish people, as once being set apart for God, being God's anointed people, He'd given them stipulation in the Torah, the law, saying, these animals are clean and you can eat them. These animals are unclean. And the guiding principle was for a four-legged animal, it had to have a split hoof and chew the cud, which basically had some form of like regurgitating its food as it chewed it. That's what God had set up, which meant that some animals were clean and some animals were unclean. Right? They could eat ox and cows and sheep and goats and deers, but you could not eat a camel or a rabbit or a badger or a pig. I don't know about you, camel, rabbit, badger, fine. Bacon's really dang good. But pig was off limits because they were God's people. They were set apart from the other nations. And to eat unclean foods meant that you were ceremonially unclean. And so the Gentiles, since they didn't follow the Jewish dietary laws, were seen as unclean people because they ate unclean food. And it became this gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. What was meant to set apart Jews as God's people became a growing gap of understanding and awareness and importance of the Gentiles for the Jewish believers. So they wouldn't enter a Gentile home, and it was this massive social divide as they would not eat together. And so you see Peter's response, and you'd almost expect it in verse 14. He says, surely not, certainly not, definitively, no way, never am I going to eat those foods because some of those animals are unclean, and I'm going to follow your law, God. There's no way I'm going to eat those unclean animals. Now, I think in this moment, you and I tend to focus on Peter's response. Peter just refused a vision from the living God, which in some ways doesn't surprise us, because we know who Peter has been and who Peter is, right? Like, God had told him, like, hey, you're going to deny me. He's like, I'm never going to deny you, and he does. He's the one that picks up the sword and chops off the servant's ear when they come to get Jesus. And so he tends to be a little bit boisterous and run ahead of his own faith. But here he says, no, certainly not. What I'd like to highlight is not Peter, 
But I think this moment says more about God than it does Peter. I think it communicates quite a bit to us about how the living God partners with us. When he goes to say, I'm going to build my kingdom and my plan is you, there's something important for us to understand in that partnership. Because you see in this that, man, what excites me the most is that God is so gentle, isn't he? Have you experienced the gentle hand of God in your life? Sean did a great job two weeks ago preaching about God's patience with us in looking at Saul's conversion. God has a great patience. He allows Peter to refuse. And after every refusal, God doesn't get angry. He doesn't pound his divine fist. He doesn't punish Peter. He doesn't leave Peter alone. And he doesn't give up on him. He repeats the vision three times. See, in repeating that vision, and each time Peter's saying, may it never be, surely not, I will not eat unclean foods. God is patiently at work in Peter's understanding of God's grace and how it is going to include the Gentile brothers and sisters who in this moment in Peter's mind are seen as unclean enemies. Another quote from Willie Jenkins, he says this, Peter resist, resists God's divine command. This is not disobedience so much as Peter needing time and space for his vision of God's redemptive kingdom, to expand his own mind and heart, to understand that God's grace is bigger and deeper and brighter than he once understood. This is about catching a greater glimpse of God and his activity. I think we need to pause for a moment and think about where do you and I need to capture a greater understanding of the significance of God's grace? And that in his grace, he's calling everyone into this life of faith to be part of his body called the church. And what I love about this patience that we see in God is that God takes risks with Peter. You ever thought about that? If God wanted to bring about his plan to bring the Gentiles into his saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and into faith, there's so many different ways that God could have done this. And yet he chose to use Peter and allow Peter to say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. And yet in his patience, he continues to pursue and woo Peter and saying, I'm, my plan is to partner with you. And see, God's not afraid. When God has a plan for our lives and you and I say, nope, may it never be. God's kingdom is not at risk. It can be delayed, but he's sovereign. It's never at risk. And so he can sit back being patient going, okay, you're not ready. Let's do this again. And let's do this again. And let's do this again. I'm sure I have brothers and sisters right now who are sitting in this church who know what it's like to be pursued by a patient, relentless God who's been calling you to do something and you know it and you've been putting it off for days or weeks or months or maybe even years. 
And while God's kingdom could be delayed, it's never at risk. And so God continues to pursue each one of us, waiting for that time where we will say, I will step closer toward you with a yes and with prayer, and let's see where this goes. And the reason I'm highlighting this, friends, is because once we understand that God takes risks with you, I think we are more prone to say yes and take a risk with God. Can I say that again? I'm going to. I'm taking your silence as permission to repeat. God takes risks with us. He knows that you and I are fail and feeble. And when he calls us into something scary, most of the time you and I say, nope. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense, just like Peter. And yet he patiently works with us. And he takes a risk on us. And us knowing that God takes risks and partners with us, even though he doesn't need to, helps us step out and walk in this journey of faith with God and take risk with him. So where is God calling you to step into risk? Where at work would it be risky to love somebody who you hardly know? to engage in a relationship, to invite them to lunch, to spend time with coffee, to say, you bear God's image, therefore you matter, and I'm going to spend time with you. Where is the risk to step into service? Where is the risk to step into leadership? Something you know that God has been calling you to, and you've been fleshing that out, but you're afraid to take the step. We can step into risk because God takes risk with us. So God is gentle. He's patient with us. He loves to partner with those who have hungry hearts. God is patient with us. He takes risks and calls us into risk. And then also my third point here is this, as we think about our relationship with God. God allows us to wander and to wonder. I'm going to say that actually inversely. God allows us to wonder and then to wander. Look with me in verse 17. So this is after Peter has the vision. We're told in verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was. They stopped by the gate and they called out, hey, does Simon Peter live here? And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So here's Peter, who spent his whole life staying away from unclean food, that God's saying now, in the new covenant, I'm giving you a picture of what you're calling unclean, which is food, but it really has to do with the Gentiles, and I'm gonna do a great work in bringing them into my house, and you need to be aware of that, Peter. So God is doing this work, and yet Peter doesn't understand. The language there of wondering is inwardly perplexed. That Peter himself is extremely confused, doesn't get it, and doesn't understand. I'm willing to bet that you've had some moments with God where you have been inwardly perplexed about his plan in your life. Things did not go the way you expected them to go. They're still not going the way that you expected them to go. Or maybe finally they were going the way you expected them to go, and then all of a sudden the left turn came. And you're going, God, what, what is this? God's willing to allow his people, you and I, to wonder and to wander. You see it in Peter, who's confused. You see it in Cornelius, who's just told, hey, 
go send your servants to find Peter who's saying at Simon the Tanner's house. Did you ever notice back in the first vision that God doesn't give him an understanding of why? Because? Go get him because? If I'm in Cornelius' shoes, before the angel leaves, I'm going, wait, wait, time out. And why am I going to Joppa? What is this about? If I'm Peter, I'm going, how am I supposed to understand this vision? What does it mean? Oh, these people are showing up from Cornelius' house? God doesn't tell him in that moment, and here's why. Because you're going to find Cornelius. Cornelius doesn't know Jesus Christ, and you're going to bring him, and that's the beginning of my mission to save the Gentiles. God leaves all of that out and just says, go. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have the whole Gentile mission, Gentile salvation, hanging in the balance, then I'm giving specific instructions to both Cornelius and Peter as to, this is what I want you to do, and this is why. It's like, what happens when we go out of town, and my wife leaves a list of like 18 things in bold print and underlined for my parents, do this, don't do that, take care of this kid this way, this kid that way. I mean, it is detailed. Can I get an amen from the moms? I look at that thing and I get exhausted and I want to go to bed and I'm amazed that my parents even want to come and help whenever we leave town. That's what I would expect, but God allows them the ability to walk with him in confusion. Why does God do that? Why does God allow Cornelius and Peter and you to walk with him without greatest clarity of what he's up to on any given moment? And I think the truth is God does this because truth we learn through our experience sinks deeper than the truth we are just told. Isn't that true? Truths that you have learned by walking and living and experiencing are deeper and more trusted by your mind and heart than me telling you, here's what's good for you. This is what the Bible says. Another example from my life, in 2018, I was given the gift of a sabbatical, and God really just changed my prayer life in the midst of that sabbatical. He moved my prayer life from duty and obligation to this great joy of intimacy of relationship with him. And I could stand up here and tell you the greatest motivating factor for a hungry heart is prayer, and the greatest motivating factor for you to want to step into prayer is not duty, not obligation. It's not pray three times through prayer. And once you experience it, you want more of it. You get hungry for it. Now, I can tell you that, but you have to go out and experience it yourself to fully step in and believe it and trust it and live it as an ongoing pattern in your life. Friends, that's why it is so important that we read Scripture, that we pray, that we enjoy fellowship, and that we serve. Because Sean and I and others can stand up here and say, well, the Bible says you should, but your should will die in about three to six months. But if you experience the power of the living God and the intimacy that comes with stepping closer toward him, that's really what makes a truth grabbed a hold of, and deep, and trusted. And finally this, God does this great preparatory work in both Cornelius and Peter. See, Cornelius is everything that men and women are striving for today. He is powerful, he is self-sufficient. You read in the text that he has his own servants. They might actually even be slaves that he can send out and do his bidding. 
He has made his wealth, he has command, he has position, he has citizenship, he has title. He is self-sufficient, but he doesn't have Jesus Christ. And that's his need that he's unaware of. Peter, while he has Jesus Christ, has this other issue of what some commentators called entrenched prejudice. He has this entrenched prejudice toward Gentiles. And if God is going to do this great work to bring the Gentiles into his body, the church, the house of faith, he's got to root out this entrenched prejudice in Peter's life as it relates to anybody who's not a Jew. See, God will show up in our lives and do preparatory work. Another way you could frame it is that before God can really do some of the kingdom work that he wants to partner with you to do, sometimes he's got to root out what is before you can grab a hold of the new kingdom work that he wants to do. This last week, I have this kind of prized plumeria tree that was given to me by the Aaron's. And I planted it, and I've watered it, and I've nurtured it, and it's all along my area of Torrance. They have these plumeria trees. It's like we're trying to be a little, you know, version of Hawaii. You know, we're, we're not even close, but we're trying. And so I'm super excited about this plumeria tree. It's got three little branches, and one of the branches broke off. And I, I don't want to, you know, point fingers. My kids play football out there. You know, people roam around. Who knows how it happened? But I go out there one day, and one of the branches is broken off and just hanging down and about to die. So I took it and cut it, and I had read that I could just stick it in the ground with some new soil, and it would begin a new plumeria tree if I just waited and continued to nurture it. So I did that, but for me to do that, I had to dig out the uh, gardenia bush that had died. I had to dig it out to plant something new. Both in these visions, God is not giving them specifics because he's in the process of digging out what is there so that he can plant something new. So what is it for you? As you think about all the ways that God partners with you to build his kingdom, he loves to partner with hungry hearts. That's just part of who he is, right? He loves to partner with people who will turn toward him. God takes risks and asks us to do the same. God allows us to wonder and to wander, and he does a preparatory work in us so that he can work through us. Where do you need Jesus? Like Cornelius? Or maybe like Paul, where do you have entrenched prejudice that's going to lead us into our conversation next week as we think about not only joining with God, but how do we join together as a multi-ethnic, multicultural place called the body of Christ that we would invite everyone who looks like us and we would invite everyone who doesn't look like us. We would invite people who think like us and people who don't think like us and say, at the table, at communion, and in the grace of God, this is what it means to be the church. We're gonna talk about that next week. But in the preparatory work leading into next week, and as we think about Martin Luther King Jr. celebrating tomorrow, and some of us have the day off, Be thinking, where do you need Jesus? And where might there be an entrenched prejudice, a people, maybe a political party, 
where you hold some disdain. And you're going to need to do some work to say, God's grace is big enough to meet me and them at this table of fellowship that we find in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me invite the worship team up and let's, let me pray. Father, man, there's a lot here. And I just ask and pray that you would take one of the points that you would help each brother and sister think about what they need to engage with this week and where you're calling them to. Father, thank you so much for your partnership with us. You are a good partner. You love to partner with our hungry hearts. You are more than patient. You take risks on us, and you do this preparatory work in us so that you might work through us. So, Father, we just simply ask that you would continue to be at work and we, your people, would be aware of what you're doing and that we would simply say yes. We may not understand it. It may not make sense in the moment. But, God, may we trust your good and faithful hand as you partner with us to build this church called Coastline and to build your kingdom presence in the South Bay. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen, let's stand together.